Hello and welcome to another episode of Fish Tales. Today I've got Andrew Welch with us. He is from NY Studio 107 and he is the host of devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to modern web development. A special thank you as the show gets started. Andrew, I really appreciate that you invested the time in me and to sit down and record this episode. So thank you very much. Please introduce yourself. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107, where we currently do mostly web-based uh, consulting. I also do developer training, that kind of stuff. I also have a very long, sorted history in the development world. Um, we can get into it later, but I, I used to be an iOS and macOS app developer for quite some time. So you've got a quite the setup there behind you. I'm curious. I, I, I want to dig into what's going on, but like, tell me about uh, your setup. Where are you at right now? So I am in my barn, which I, uh, when we bought this house a long time ago, they uh, actually had a half pipe here where the kids that were here before turned this into like a big uh, kind of skating thing. And I told them to, to rip it out. And for many years, what I did is I uh, ran poker games here. So behind me used to be two poker tables. We used to have, you know, uh, friends over. We'd have cigars and we'd be playing poker and all that kind of good stuff. And uh, a number of years ago, I think it was like 2013-ish, I decided to uh, shut my uh, Mac and iOS software development company down. And then I converted this uh, barn from being a poker room into my home office. And what you're seeing behind me, what everyone else who's listening can't see, is there's a, a big rack set up with some dumbbells and all that kind of stuff. And years ago, I, I used to weight train a good bit. The pandemic started, and I realized my kids had no gym class anymore. And I'd already started lifting weights again, just uh, with some, uh, you know, those uh, Bowflex adjustable dumbbells, like no big deal, right? I mean, the most important thing with most things in life, but also with weight training that you need for in terms of equipment is motivation, right? You just need motivation and something heavy to lift is really all that you need. And we started out with that, that, and I got the kids involved so that three times a week, you know, we didn't start there, but we're up to three or four times a week. We all come down and we, we work out together. And I ended up getting this nice set of weights that I have now after we had done it for over a year and a half or two years together, you know, that we were kind of committed to doing it. And it works out a lot better for them. The, the adjustable weights are great for saving space, but they're terrible for little kids because no matter how little weight you put on there, it's still really long and really big and it's hard for them to deal with. So I got a nice set of adjustable dumbbells and we use that. And the kids also do Ninja Warrior, so I've got a little bit of a rack set up where they can, we do, and we integrated body weight training into it too, like pull-ups and uh, sit, uh, we do crunches and we do push-ups and planks and a whole bunch of other stuff like that. So yeah, that's the that's the deal with the setup back there. Oh, it looks really good. So Ninja Warrior training, the kids are into that. Okay, so tell me some more about that. I've got this local park near me, a company called Game Time put it in. And um, it's a timed obstacle course. It's very slick setup. I'd never seen it before, but obviously I've seen the show. I've seen American Ninja Warrior on TV. And the kids at the park love that obstacle course. Um, so I'm curious, do you have anything like that around you? Do the kids get out or do they are they focused on training? Do they actually want to go try out for the show? 
So we do actually. There's a place called the Warrior Factory that is. It's probably only twenty or thirty minutes away. That both of the kids have been going to for years and years, and they do that. They do all sorts of crazy training, and it's actually really cool because they love it. From their perspective, it's just like a fancy jungle gym, but it's also it's teaching them a whole lot of stuff, and they're also getting stronger. Let me, you know, if you're you're hanging from a, a bar or jumping from bar to bar all the time, like you're going to get strong. Like you don't need, you know, artificial weights to, to make that happen. So they do that. Um, they, neither one of my kids, they're both, um, they're both doing it. One is 11, the other is 13. They have been doing it for a while, but neither one has gone to like a competition. Um, the older one is in the, what they call the comp squad training, where in theory they go places to compete. He's not so much in it for that, but maybe we'll get him there. So they haven't done it yet, but they enjoy doing the uh, the training part of it. Nice. I've got a daughter. She's in gymnastics, and I'm always amazed watching. She's kindergarten level right now and just watching everyone that's in the gym working. And you have every age group in there, and yeah. I can already tell the fitness and the skills. And like you said, people can't see me. I am not an American Ninja Warrior. I am not in shape, um, but I, I definitely want my kid to do better than me. So. I think anything you can combine fitness with entertainment or engagement yeah. and the challenge aspect, that's yeah. going to keep and them it, hooked. And it also teaches them that, you know, the work that they put in will give them results. You know, they get excited when they can do something that they couldn't do before or when they time something, you know, and, and even stuff with the weight training, like they're able to lift something they weren't able to lift before. And they both also do cross country and track and they have really taken to it in terms of, you know, it being like this vehicle for them to get out, get exercise, they compete with themselves. But also, I I insisted that they do some kind of a team sport. Like we tried soccer, we tried a couple other things. I'm like, look, I don't care what you do, but you're doing something. Right. <laughs> and that's where we that's where we landed for now. So I think it's interesting. Uh, I have just gotten back into hiking. And nice. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit, I'll talk about this some in, in the, other, the other episodes, but we talked about this as we got on, I'm taking some time off from full-time work. I'm contracting right now. Um, and I'm, I'm working on a, you know, side business idea. And the thing that stuck out to me, not having this pressure right now of nine to five, be online, do your stand up at 9am is mm. that I go to the park every day and I hike, I go out on nice. these trails and I I'm, what I'm realizing is how out of balance my life has been the past, mm -hmm. you know, little bit. And so I think with, with programming specifically, it's easy to just sit here and get caught up in my head. And, and I think I'm making progress while, you know, the physical me is just deteriorating in this chair. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious, uh, you know, you've, you've had some experience programming, uh, you built the gym here throughout your career. Did you, do you feel like you maintained balance around all this? Do you feel like you were investing, uh, in your physical health too? Have you kept that up? Consistently, no, <laughs> but I have had really, really good spurts of doing it. Um, and honestly, those times have always been times that I have enjoyed just my life better. And, I, and I'm with you. Like I, we live on a bunch of land. One of the things that I do every day, you know, unless something crazy happens, is I go for a hike. And I've got this nice uh, route that goes through some trails and it's about a, about three miles, takes me about an hour and I'm just kind of enjoying the hike. And I just love it. I love getting out there. I love just kind of disconnecting. 
I don't intentionally try to solve problems, but there are times that I'll just be out there hiking that some sticky problem that I was working on or some way to architect something, I just kind of like figure it out. And again, I'm not going on these hikes with the intention of doing that, but I do find that that sometimes happens. And I think maybe it just gives your brain a little while to settle because if you're sitting in front of the computer, it's real easy to feel like or think you're working and you're really browsing Twitter or maybe maybe you're checking out Imager or maybe I'm just pointing out all of my bad habits, but it's real easy to get distracted and do that kind of stuff. And I just have always been someone that I've enjoyed the fresh air. I've enjoyed getting outside. One of the things that I'm doing um, in addition to the hiking every day is I'm doing a, uh, a 5K training program. So I, I've got three runs that I do every week, and I actually really look forward to them because I feel better after I've done it. You know, everything is kind of cleared up, and it's just, it's just an enjoyable thing. And it's an undeniable truth that your mind and your body are linked. When your body is feeling better, your mind is going to feel better, and vice versa. And doing something, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be anything you know, dramatic. Even just getting out and walking or hiking uh, with on a regular basis can can make a big difference. It really can. The routine's been a big change for me, right? I yeah. would do things sporadically and then realize how out of shape I was when I would sporadically try to go to the bike park and ride a mountain bike for the first time in two years. I took the pandemic a little too seriously. I think, you know, looking back, <laughs> no regrets, but we definitely yeah. kind of stayed put. And um, yeah, I went to a mountain bike park and I was like, oh, oh, this hurts. My legs were sore for three days yep. after. It was bad. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, so you talked a little bit. Yes. Yes. To acknowledge what you said. I feel like your subconscious helps you process things and you mm -hmm. have no control over this. So I don't know, yep. maybe subconscious is the right word, but when you give your brain space, like you said, uh, and yes. you kind of turn down the inputs, that's what I noticed walking in nature. And I think that's yep. why it feels so restorative and, and healthy is that this constant bombardment that we have right now, it's just gone, especially for yep. me. I put my phone away. Um, you know, I don't listen to music while I'm hiking. And so it's, yeah, the inputs are dialed way down. I, I do a mix. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast. Sometimes, um, actually, I rarely listen to music when I hike. I do sometimes listen to music when I go for a run, you know, just sure. to get me pumped up or whatever. But other times, yeah, I just have nothing going on and I do it. And what you're saying, I, I don't know the scientific basis for it. But it makes logical sense that your brain has all these inputs. And if you're constantly stimulating them with this little thing or that little thing, you're not giving it time to rest or to think about other things. Like it just intuitively, it makes sense, you know. Um, so I can't tell you the um, the science behind it, but I can tell you that it's made a qualitative difference in my life to make the time to do that. And it's one of those things where. Lots of people say, oh, you know, I really want to exercise or, oh, I, you know, I really should do this. Well, prove it, right? The way you prove that this thing is important to you is by actually doing it. And there was a, a person I listened to that uh, was giving advice on weight training to someone that was calling in. And uh, he said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in starting this weight training. You know, what's the, the best advice you can give me. And he had some other questions about it. equipment and gym memberships and this, that, and the other thing. And the guy's answer, he said, you know, my best advice is to start. Don't worry about buying all the gear. Don't worry about all this or all that. Just start. That is the most important thing that you can, you can do if you want to start, you know, uh, on your path to 
you know, weight training, running, learning something, you know, whatever it is, is to start. Is it going to be perfect when you start? No, of course not. But we've all seen these people that buy every piece of expensive gear before they say they think it's like a scene from Rambo where they they buy everything. <laughs> that's not the important thing. You need the motivation to do the thing. You know, that's the important thing. Uh, I, I will confess, I do enjoy the gear. And one of the things and I know it doesn't have to be the expensive gear. But one of the things that's caught me um, when I've been hiking is the quantitative side of me. Mm. kicks in and I want to know, okay, how long was I just exercising? What was my mm. heart rate, which I've not been wearing a heart rate monitor. I'm not, I don't have an Apple watch. I don't track any of this, but it's like inching into my brain. Uh, when I get back, I'm like, well, I wonder how far I actually went. And I kind of estimate the distance with Google maps. I do the measured distance thing. And, but I, I find that I want that. And so now I'm kind of torn and I'll get your opinion on this. I don't know if I should give into that and buy a better um, three axis pedometer that I can wear. I don't want my phone doing everything. I don't want to watch, but a, a specific th uh, three axis pedometer, or if I should embrace this and let this be a step away from, I know that I'm gone for two hours. I know that I've been walking for two hours. I clearly have exercise. I don't think I need to know exactly how far, but there is that part of me that wants to start measuring because I'm looking for that improvement. So what, what am I measuring? What am I improving on? So I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think it depends on what you want to get out of it. I am enjoying what you're saying about this just being like a freeing thing that you just don't know and don't care about any of it. Um, I can tell you that I'm someone that I, I own a very nice watch that I bought, you know, maybe 15 years ago, so maybe a little bit more than that when my company had been amazing. I bought this really nice watch and then I stopped wearing it. And I stopped wearing it in large part because, uh, you know, we had kids. We weren't going out to nice places that much anymore. You know, nobody cares if you're wearing a nice watch when you're going out to Applebee's or whatever for, for dinner. But also just I was carrying a phone around most of the time. So I didn't need it. You know, I'm like, it was really just a piece of jewelry. So for a very long time, I didn't wear a watch. And now look at what's on my wrist. Look at this. I got a watch here. And th this is a, a Garmin watch. And I bought it specifically for tracking, um, not so much the hikes, because I have a pretty good idea what the distance is there, but for the running that I'm doing. Um, and also, amazingly, it also tracks the weight training. It does a shockingly good job of figuring out what exercise you're doing just by the motions that you're doing. And it actually does a really good job tracking it. I think it depends on your goals. If your goals are to uh, just have it be something that is for your mental health, just for relaxing and going, then don't bring anything. If your goals are to try to um, improve your health, maybe lose weight, I would definitely get something to track these things because it is a very helpful reminder to me about how many calories have you used up, you know, doing various things. And if, if that is your goal, then yes. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to turn it into this, you know, high stress kind of thing. Um, but I did a lot of research before getting this. I, I know people that have uh, the Apple Watch and for my specific purpose, which is the exercise fitness aspect of it, the it's a Garmin Epix 2 is what it is, is perfect for me. But I think it depends on your goals. I think it's totally cool if you just use this as a break from the world and just go do it and don't bring anything with you. I maybe don't go naked. You might get arrested depending on what <laughs> where sure. you are, but, but don't bring other stuff with you. Then, then great. If that's what it is for you, then fine. 
um, if you think you would get something out of it from a, I want to be able to improve my health and I want to be able to measure how I'm doing, then it is something that actually can be really useful from an analytical point of view and also from a keeping yourself honest point of view. I think the honesty thing is is important for me. I mean, I definitely fall into the what get met, what gets measured gets managed. Yeah. And so, but now that's a part of me that where I do track, obviously, uh, just by having my phone with me and turned on, I do get the Apple mm-hmm. health. I have an iPhone, so it does the Apple health yeah. thing. And I just discovered this last week. I'm, it's, it's really funny. I love computers. I love technology, but I am phone illiterate. I'm phone ignorant <laughs> by choice. I just know the phone can do all kinds of stuff that I really don't. I just want it to make phone calls. I hear you on that because I've got, I used to be, we used to develop iOS stuff, right? And I haven't done that for quite some time. And my son, my 11-year-old son, is now helping me use my phone, and it's freaking embarrassing, man. (laughs) It's funny, though. I've put off, so I I still have the SE, so I have the little phone, because it has a physical home button, because I still don't like everything being gesture-based on the new phones. I get so lost. I'm like, well, I don't know how to operate this. I am officially a troglodyte. I am old. This is, it's over for me. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the iOS app. So I'll give you a choice here. So I want to know, so you did mention briefly in your intro um, that you're at NY Studio 107. So, yep. you know, we can go one of two ways here. Tell me what you're doing now, or we can go chronological and go back and tell me what you've been doing and how you got here with some more detail. So I guess I'll, I'll give you my background. My When I was growing up, my father owned a consulting company where they did kind of business-to-business communication. And I'm, you know... I'm definitely going to date myself here, but this was back when they still had type books. So they'd have these physical book that would have a printout of the font so that their layout people could pick from it. And they were actually using that. And I I remember looking at that and I started getting into computers by designing typefaces. I'm like, oh, I saw some other people that was doing it. And I was, I think it was like 13, 14 at the time. And I started by designing typefaces, and I had seen people that were selling this stuff online, something called shareware, where they would just put a notice on it and, you know, please pay for this if you if you want to. And the one thing I noticed is that the documentation or the thing that said, hey, please pay me, often got separated from the typeface that people were distributing. So I wanted to figure out a way to package the two together, and so I taught myself programming. Um I I toyed with it, you know, just in basic, um, but then I started using Pascal, which is something that nobody uses today. They they don't even use it for teaching programming anymore. Um, And then I eventually learned C, and it was just something that I really enjoyed doing. And I was doing uh, kind of system-level programming. I went to college for photojournalism and through the software that I, I already was running a software business by then, um, able to pay my own way through college, pay for you know all the good stuff. So I was doing I was doing pretty good for someone my age. And through all that, I knew a famous photographer um, named Rick Smolin, who did a lot of the the Day in the Life series books, like A Day in the Life of Vietnam. He also did a book called Alice to Ocean, which is a really cool pictorial book of a woman who lived in the middle of Australia with a bunch of camels on a farm. And she decided one day she was just going to walk from where she was all the way to the coast of Australia with her camels. 
which if you have no concept of the size of Australia or what it is like, it would be like someone in pretty someone in like maybe Alabama deciding to walk to California. But most of it is desert, like not hospitable. You know, a good way to think about Australia is like it's a donut. There's really nothing in the middle in terms of there being a whole lot of vegetation. Anyway, he was giving a speech at my college. I met up with him for some beers afterwards. And he's like, hey, Andrew, if I were you, I would stick to this computer thing. Like, you know, if you become a, a photographer or a photojournalist, you know, first of all, don't expect you're going to be like me. And he didn't mean that in a cocky way. He meant, you know, I got lucky uh, because he had one of the very coveted National Geographic photographer kind of jobs. He said, you're going to be carrying someone's bags. You're going to be, you know, developing someone's film. They were using film back then. Okay. And he was kind of pushing me against it. I'm like, well, what are you saying? He's saying I suck at photography. He's like, no, I mean, you're, you're okay, but you have to get really lucky. And also I think this computer thing might be good for you. And I, I took that to heart and I ended up uh, in, incorporating a software company, Ambrosia Software. We developed Mac utilities and games for a very long time. We had some of the first games that were out for the um, uh, Apple iPhone. And we also did a bunch of Mac apps for a really long time. But I, man, I had done this for over 20 years and I just mm -hmm. got kind of bored of it. Um, I kind of tuned out. I no longer would, and it, it, the company was, you know, I think we had 15 people with a whole bunch of other people we work with, you know, consulting or whatever. And I kind of tuned out and the company kind of, uh, you know, wasn't doing as well anymore. And I, I'm just like, you know what, this is silly. If I don't feel like going to the office every day and I'm self-employed, like that's just messed up. Like. <laughs> There's something wrong here. Um, and I ended up deciding to take the step of winding the company down, which was really scary for me because it was the first, you know, I had kids at this point. How mm -hmm. am I going to support my kids? Anyone who's got kids knows that as soon as you have them, you're like, you feel this obligation that you, you have to take care of them. So there was that. And there was also just like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do next kind of thing. Um, but decided it was the right thing to do regardless. So wound that down. And uh, coincidentally, I had uh, someone that I knew at the time who, uh, his name is Bart Hansen. He's a professional poker player and his website was dying. And I, you know, we had a website at our company, but I didn't necessarily really know anything about it. And so I went in there and I had some free time because I wasn't running the company anymore. And I fixed some things for him. And he said, well, can you fix everything? And I'm like, no, but if you want to start over, like I can build this website for you, which at the time I was just thinking, well, how hard could it be? Right. You know, I've, I've come from doing uh, quote unquote serious development with, you know, Mac and iOS apps. I can do this web development thing, you know, no problem. Um, you know, ended up being good that I didn't know what I didn't know because it was, you know, there's a lot to learn like anything new, but I sort of fell into that um, and built uh, or rebuilt his crushlivepoker.com site for him, you know, e-commerce site with video training, sign up and learned a whole bunch of stuff through there. Um, and then I just kind of continued on that path, was doing consulting, um, had fallen into using uh, Craft CMS, which is a, a CMS for building websites. The reason I fell into that was that a lot of the work that I was tending to get was 
um, websites where there needed to be content that was managed by the uh, client, right? So these were not necessarily front-end apps. So it was a very big departure from what I was doing before. What language is this that you're working on? Like Craft CMS, what is this? Is this PHP or ASP.NET or what is it? Yeah, so Craft CMS is a PHP-based CMS. Um, and it's it, it's got a great content authoring experience on the back end. And then the front end is a complete blank canvas, which is really refreshing for me because in the interim, I had used a couple of, I've seen a couple of other things like ModX, which is another CMS and Expression Engine, which is another CMS. And I, as someone that came from the Mac and iOS development world, I, mean, I used to program stuff in assembly language for, you know, certain games to make them quick enough. I was really frustrated by these systems because they kind of forced things on you. Like I knew how to do it, but I had to figure out how to hammer the system into letting me do what I already knew how to do, which I found incredibly frustrating. The thing that I enjoyed about Craft CMS when I got into it was that the front end is a blank canvas. There, here's your, here's the, the CP for uh, people editing stuff. Here's your API, go build your thing. Um, and that was appealing to me from a programmer that was used to the limitation being what I was able to do, not how to hammer the system into doing what I wanted to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I did that for, uh, or I, I've done that for quite some time. I've also developed a number of plugins for Craft CMS that I now sell. You know, as someone that I've, I've sold products since I was an early teenager, it's just kind of in my bones to do that. And I also found that the uh, the consulting life can be it can be annoying because there are parts of it that you have to do that I didn't enjoy, like constantly having to acquire new customers, constantly having to to give pitches, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and especially if you're new to the space, you, you kind of have to do that. And it makes sense. You have to prove yourself before you get a client base, all that kind of thing. But I just enjoy selling product. I enjoy several of the roles that are involved there from the UX design to the product owner, where you're trying to figure out what the product should be, to the development, to the marketing. Like that's something that I have done on different platforms in different capacities for a long time. So it was a natural for me to do that. And, and at this point I do uh, a decent bit of developer training as well. You know, if a company has a development team or an agency has a development team and they wanna get up to speed on the best practices of uh, you know, web performance or um, build systems using something like Vite or, you know, whatever it may be, uh, dockerizing and containerizing your development system, all that kind of stuff. I will go in and, and work with companies to kind of upskill them on it. And I find that actually more rewarding than doing client work. It still is client work, but you have people that are real eager to learn the stuff. And while every new client project is a challenge, if you're talking about just front-end web development, it also becomes kind of the same to some extent. <laughs> you know what it I is. Mean? It is it's yeah. all the same. Yeah. So that's interesting that you mentioned V, and I, I want to talk about a couple of things here. I made some notes. So yep. one, I've reached this point in my career, so there's a little bit of burnout going on, and mm. This uh, feeling that I've been here, I've done this, I've got the shirt. And so um, at other companies, I've, I've been in a senior staff level or a head of level uh, for the past three or four years now. 
And I tell them, tell everyone I work with, like, hey, I have been here. I have done this. I've got the shirt. It's your turn. Uh, that, that's what I want out of my career at this point. I, I don't yep. want to be doing the work. I want to help people do yep. the work. And uh, teaching is one way to do that. I don't think I'm a very, I think I'm, I'm okay at instructing. I think there's a difference between instructing and teaching or presenting and teaching, but I mm. did learn the hard way. I am not a good teacher. Mm. I'm lacking some patience or empathy. I'm hoping I can work on that. Be my 2023 goal, but teaching is very hard for me. Have, did you feel like, you know, transitioning over? Do you feel like you are instructing more or teaching? Like, do you feel like there's a difference in those words? You feel like you, you do more actual teaching or is it more uh, guiding? Because, you know, I feel like there's a difference. You know, when you're guiding someone, they, they're they just missing some key piece, right? They don't know what they don't know. And so you mentioned right. Veet. And so you may say, oh, yeah, the latest thing, people still use ES Build, but really they're using ES Build through Veet. And right. because of that, you get XYZ. And I like espousing and talking about that sort of stuff. But to sit down and teach, teach from first principles, I really struggle. So I've never been a, a formal teacher. One of the things that I did start doing when I transitioned to doing web development is I did start blogging about stuff. And one of the reasons that I did that is I felt that to really learn something, you have to be able to explain it to somebody else, you know, that, that old saw. And I think yep. that that's really true. And also because I went from running a company, working with a bunch of people to essentially being on my own. I mean, I had, you know, colleagues that I knew and everything, but it also gave me an, a communication outlet. So I started blogging where I was, you know, and basically what I would do is I was uncovering lots of new stuff for me, right? Because I was and and the web development world is just massive in terms of the pigeonholes that you can get into and the the corners of it, you could spend a lifetime and you would never master every bit of it. But whenever I found something that I thought was new and interesting, I got excited. I got excited about it and I wanted to share that with other people and I wanted to delve into how it was. And it, it didn't stem from a coordinated or planned thing. There, there's some people that they're blogging because they want to get noticed. They're blogging because they, they want that um, air of credibility about them, you know, that type of thing. And that's fine. I think it's a, a great thing to do that too. But I was just doing it kind of like, cause I was excited cause I wanted to communicate with it. And I also just felt like I would learn some of this stuff better if I would blog and, and write this stuff down. I don't think that I am necessarily a teacher cause I don't have formal training doing this stuff. One of the things that I am aware of though, is especially in other realms of development, you get a lot of people that are very good at the tech aspect of it, but are not really good communicators in terms of just their interpersonal skills. And it, it may be that just a certain personality is drawn towards doing, you know, hardcore, uh, you know, C, Swift development, you know, whatever, whatever it ends up being. And I think this was more the case when I was doing this, you know, a long time ago than it is now, because now it's it's something that, I mean, tech is like a big thing and like everyone wants to be in tech. Everything is tech related. Back when I was doing it, you had to be a really particular kind of person to get into that. And most of those people who were really good at the programming point of view, and there's nothing wrong with them as people, they're great people, but they're not good communicators. And something I was aware of with myself was that I kind of straddled both worlds in terms of I could do the tech stuff, 
but I also, you know, you could take me to a party and I would feel comfortable and I would talk to people <laughs> and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And because of that, I, I thought it was an interesting nexus where, you know, I could do both of the things. I could, I could learn the thing really well and inside and out. And then I could also explain it relatively well to someone, you know, these, the blog posts that I did, they, they're not things that I, uh, formalized the way that a teacher would with a lesson plan and, you know, didn't put necessarily an incredible amount of work into, but I think uh, relatively good at explaining the thing in a way that uh, someone not knowing it would then understand, A, the the benefit of learning this thing, right? Because up front, you don't want to just dive into like, yeah, okay, some people just want to learn this one thing, but a lot of people, you got to sell them on, you know, well, what am I going to get out of this? Like, what's the whole point in doing this? And then also explaining to them how to do it. Um, so I do think there is a difference between teaching and instructing. I think the jury is definitely still out on me in terms of whether I would be a good teacher. I also do uh, live streams with uh, someone named Ryan Ireland on a uh, craft quest is his uh, website. And basically what he does is he does tutorial videos centered around craft CMS. And I go on there and we do live streams. Uh, I think we do them twice a month where we, you know, go into various topics, explain things. And as part of that, I've had to formalize, you know, okay, we're going to learn this. Let me do up some examples of it and, and layer them and building them on. So it's like, I don't know, it's like teaching light, but I, I can't really say how good I would be at that. But I do agree with you that teaching a concept is, is different than being an instructor. I definitely agree with you. Yeah. Well, I feel like people, especially with training, when you think of just training, just the word training yeah. and, and corporate training, or that you're learning something, especially for your job, you have some foundation and you generally have a goal and you can kind yeah. of see where you want to go. And yeah. that was, that's very different than teaching someone that's not been exposed to any of these concepts. That's a great thing that you brought up is that introducing yeah. concepts is a very different skill. And that I think uh, some things that jumped out to me is I've lost all my creativity. Mm. So when I sit down to think of examples, I really just hit a wall. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I already know how to do this. It's very hard for me to go back and remember, you know, like what seemed interesting. That's something that seems so simple now is like is, is something new for someone else. There's a great yeah. XKCD about that where they're like, oh, you know, you're the lucky 1000th person today. You know, you're the person that didn't know about this thing. I can't wait to tell you about it. And so uh, I've tried yeah, to, yeah. you know, I tried to keep that in my mind that, you know, people are excited to learn. Um, and especially if they have something, you know, you have something that they don't have, you have exposure to things they don't have. And so trying to remind myself, there is something interesting here uh, to tell people and teach people. And, but it's a struggle for real, the creative side. What I have done. <laughs> I'm someone that I also like to try to have fun in whatever I'm doing, if I can. Now, you know, you're, you're programming, you're not up on the stage dancing and, you know, strutting, you know, playing a guitar or whatever, but there's still things that you can do to try to have fun in, in some aspects of it, right? So one of the things that I do with my examples with Ryan is, you know, I will know something uh, about him or, you know, some little thing, and I will try and incorporate that. Uh, as an example, my, he's a vegan, right? So one of the examples that I came up with was a charcuterie board. You know, we, I think this was a learning TypeScript uh, thing that we, we did. 
and where we, we, we wrote some JavaScript and we had, you know, we're throwing uh, some meats and some cheeses and some vegetables on the charcuterie board. And then I showed how to add types using TypeScript and how it would throw an error when you threw a vegetable onto the charcuterie board, which <laughs> I was kind of like a little needle at him. You know, I'm like, cause Ryan, we're not, we're not allowed to have vegetables. You know, I'm sorry, you know, right. But the, the difficult thing about that, I mean, there is a creative aspect, which it can be hard to come up with a fun example, but the hard part for me is coming up with a fun example that is also practical and also like teaches something kind of interesting. And yeah, it, it can be a little bit of work to do it. Um, I think if you are blocked creatively, and maybe this is my bias just because I do product, but consider working on uh, some kind of a product. Because as a product owner, as someone that is developing the features that should be in there, the doing research on the price points, coming up with marketing slogans, you know, all this kind of stuff, there's a lot of creativity, creativity involved in that aspect of it. Have you considered looking into something like that? that that's interesting you said it like that. Yes, I consider it. We talk about Ruby on Rails. That To me, that sort of thing helps me because it's almost like creativity on Rails. Um, I do a whole lot better with anything, with programming as well. The more constraints I have, the easier things are. A lot of people look at environments. I don't want to you know, try to use too much negativity, but the environments, they may feel that um, hamper them or put them in a box. I really enjoy that. I enjoy those constraints, creative constraints. They really help me because I feel like if there are too many options, if it's too broad. Um, so one thing, yes, to, to your point, one of the things I've thought about is always trying to have a, a consistent theme about things, um, whether that's, you know, working with ideas around video games, if that's ideas around comic books and superheroes. I did comic books and superheroes for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. So any of my examples focused on superheroes and superpowers, which was something I think I saw in Egghead, I think was, was where I first saw that. And mm -hmm. I riffed on that. And there was a really cool project years ago. Marvel opened up their API and you can go, mm -hmm get information from every comic ever published. And so we did some stuff with comic book covers and analyzing like, what's the, what's the dominant color in comic book covers, any comic from Marvel over the past 60 years have color shifted. Did we shift in printing process? Did we move from a lot of blues to a lot of reds? I don't know. It was just, it was a very interesting thing to explore. And when you start really just putting the, that constraint on, uh, but as far as having an actual product, I haven't done that. So I haven't thought of, um, like I'm, uh, I think, uh, Wes boss does a fish market for his react thing, a fish market or a fish restaurant. I can't remember, but yeah, he had a very consistent theme and box and everything was around that. And so I've not done that. Well, I don't even mean from a instruction point of view, I mean, actually developing a product that you're going to sell. Oh, oh, I'm, oh, I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I should say, so depending on when this gets published, just how relevant this will be. Um, yeah, I'm currently in Y Combinator Startup School, which is nice. their free program. I applied to YC. I doubt that I will get in. But yes, I did that very thing. I was like, you know, I, I think there's some software that the world is missing around managing daycares. There's 22 players in the space, but my child's daycare, uh, they do not take uh, credit or they take credit cards. We do, don't take online payments. And so when I fished into that, I'm like, why do you not take payments? Yep. We can't afford the software. I was like, well, if I built you the software and gave it to you, would you use it? And they said, oh, well, of course we would. 
So there's certainly a market there of small daycares, independently owned, very small, yep. where they, they don't have the overhead. And that is, yes, that is my, con- my creative constraint. That's the box I'm in right now. Yeah, I mean, and that is the way that a lot of product comes about is when you have something where you are kind of scratching your own itch, where you have seen a problem with your background, you know that there are way better ways to solve this problem. You know, I I, I see that all the time where, you know, we're in tech, other people are running businesses that are not, they may be using tech, but they're not tech businesses. They don't realize how much easier life could be if only they would do this. And I think that is the genesis of a lot of great uh, uh, software projects is, you know, just scratching your itch, finding something that you think uh, you can do a better job. I mean, that that really is the, the genesis of a lot of the stuff that I've worked on and that other people have worked on as product is really just you thinking, hey, I could do better than this. You know, whatever the way that you're doing things, I can make this better. And then using the skills that you have to try to solve that, that's great. I mean, I did one of the things that I did briefly in my transition from, you know, trying to figure out what I was doing was I was a part of a Silicon 500, which is, uh, I forget how they're related, but it is a uh, incubator type thing out in San Francisco. They flew me out there to do it. Um, I think it's interesting. I have mixed feelings about them. I do think that for me personally, because I had run a company for so long, there were lots of things that I I would not necessarily get out of that environment because it's stuff that I had done, I was used to doing. Would I get better from the expert advice that you're, you're given when you go there? Yeah, I mean, I probably would have. But realistically, I probably would just focus on doing it myself and, you know, whatever. Um, and I, the other thing about those uh, incubator type things is they, they're almost like universities in a way in that they're really about funding themselves in one yep. way or another. And it's just something important to keep in mind when you're getting into it is that th- this is a business that yeah, it's great for them when they do get a unicorn, but they don't really care that much. It's more about keeping their uh, teaching business going, you know, is really kind of what it is. Now, I'm I'm not downplaying it. If you are able to get accepted there, it is a great accomplishment because they have so many people that apply to do it. And I would definitely recommend that if you get the opportunity, it's an experience that you should go and do and uh, and see how you feel. I also wouldn't discount the possibility, like, you know, let's say what probably happens happens. And I'm not saying this by putting you down at all. No, no, no. I know the odds. Probably yeah. you won't get accepted just because they have so many, especially after the pandemic. I'm sure people are, you know, cooped up and they're, they're everyone's trying to do their own thing. There's no reason you can't also try to bootstrap this yourself, you know. Um, obviously, you still have to feed yourself. You still have to feed your kids. But there are plenty of businesses out there that are bootstrapped and there actually are, again, there are businesses that are built around (laughs) businesses that are trying to bootstrap themselves, right? I mean, I I know I've got a friend of mine that is involved in one of those. So there are resources out there for that too. And uh, just don't feel like if you don't get VC funding, there's no way that you're ever going to make this happen because you can still do it on your own. It just, it does make some things harder, not having money. And the other thing that these incubators do is they have connections. So 
if you're in a particular space, they have lots of other businesses in their space that they'll plug you into. They have, I mean, this is, I don't know if it's a dirty little secret, but Forbes and Barron's and some of these other magazines, you can just pay someone to write an article that's going to appear there. And if you're in these incubators, they'll have articles that they're, they'll have their writers that are on staff at these other magazines will write about your great up and coming business, you know, and it will all just seem like randomly inorganic, but, but no, it's because you're in their incubator and you're kind of plugged into their network. So you do get that as well. Yeah. I do feel like TechCrunch, a, a, a large portion of TechCrunch is just pure YC coverage. Yeah. Um, why combinator just, for those listening? It's just, see. it's how it works. And it's one of those things that's like, you know, just know that that's what it is and just deal with it. What it is, you know, once you know, something's nature, you're, you're able to approach it and manage it better. You know, the thing that I really, so I've worked for three YC companies and it's mm -hmm. been interesting to see the commonality, uh, in the founders and the commonality in the business, the operation mindset and, mm -hmm. There's a part of me that honestly, I don't think I fit into that cohort. Mm. I, I question some of that and it's not for lack of wanting to run a business because I, I have a lot of desire to run a business. So we'll see where things go. But the one thing that I've, I've known is they have amazing benefits. I mean, mm. substantial like six figure credits with yes. multiple vendors. And so you can effectively for somebody like you and I, we know about technology. We want to run software as a service. It's going to run for free for one to two years, completely yep. free. No overhead. You yep. can literally use everything that you would want to use. Not, not saying you should just go willy nilly, like use every technology. Uh, but cloud is not cheaper. People think cloud is very cheap. It is not. And having credits, you know, is a, is a big thing. So I don't know. That's, that's the motivator. It's less the VC money and more the credits yep. and the access to the network. Well, and that is a big thing that I didn't mention. Yeah, you're right. The hosting, but also I remember. Um, working with SendGrid, you know, you'll be, you want to, you want to spam people. Well, no, I shouldn't say that you want to no, send <laughs> marketing emails to people, you know, here, here's your account, here's your credits, good to go. And, and you're right. That's, that is a huge part of those as well is they have all of these networks of companies that some of them are, are just in the same space that they're partnering with them. Others are former companies that have been part of their startup that are plugged into it. And that is a, a wonderful benefit. Um, just understand, you know, they're not doing this to be nice and generous. Right? They're doing this because right. they, they want their business to succeed. They want to be able to market you and trumpet you. And they also have a piece of your company. So they want it to succeed from that point of view. And, and none of these things are bad things. Just go into it knowing that this is what it is. It, um, as someone that bootstrapped my company, I mean, I sort of was subsidized in a way. I mean, I kind of started doing it was like 13, 14 years old and I didn't have to worry about rent. I didn't have to worry about food. I live with my parents, you know what I right. mean? So, you know, those were kind of taken care of for me, but I, I did see though, that it is possible to build something up without having investment money. Like we, we never took a dime of VC to do anything. And still to this day, I haven't, I did get a line of credit from my bank. Um, but that was just under advice from my CPA that, you know, anytime you're doing well as a business, that's when it's time to get things like lines of credit that you don't get charged for unless you use, because you may be doing amazing now, but there may be some time in the future that you may need something to bridge the gap during, you know, who knows what kind of thing happens. 
But the time to get credit is when you're doing awesome, not when you're doing terrible and you actually need the money. Um, but, you know. Well, bootstrap is obviously like the preference, I think, just from company structure and ownership and value and control. Um, it's definitely the way to go. It's tough, though, man, because I'll tell you, the interesting thing is that talking about skill sets, you know, a, a lot of programmers may be very good at uh, getting their warping their mind into code, but not that good at communicating the same traits that it takes to be a really good uh, founder developer may not be the, the good, the traits that are needed to actually grow and scale the company. And I learned this when, you know, my company was growing from where it was just me, where we had, you know, four or five people to up to 15. It doesn't seem like much. It's like, oh, it's only 10 more people, but it is a radical change. Like that company size is kind of a radical change in terms of how you have to approach things. You know, you can't be the guy that does everything anymore. And a lot of the personality traits that make really good founders don't necessarily make good people to manage the day-to-day -day bean counting to then scale it up. And you need to be honest with yourself and recognize that and then hire people to do the thing that either you don't like doing or you're not good at. And a lot of times, if you're not good at something, it's because you don't really like it. You don't really want to do it. I think right. people can get pretty good at just about anything if they're really willing to put in the time to do it. So if you're not good at something, it may mean that you don't really like it. So be able to be honest with yourself and get other people in roles to fill that as the company scales up. Bootstrapping is, it's great, like you said, from an ownership point of view. Uh, it can also be, uh, I don't know if you're a uh, Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon fan, but it, it can be a little bit like a family that marries inside their own family to an extent in that you can end up with some kind of unhealthy structures just because you don't really know, you know, you may not be good at these certain things. You don't pay attention to these things. Um, and having some VC funding where they'll actually have people come in and be like, no, 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 you got to do it like this. You have to have your business plan nailed. What do you mean you didn't do your market research before you decided on this price point? You know what I mean? Whereas if you're just bootstrapping, you just be like, I don't know, I think 59 bucks sounds good for this thing. Let's just do it. If you have that kind of VC funding involved, they're going to be like, no, no, no. I, I would like to see your, your business plan and the research behind why you decided this price point is the right price point. So it does kind of force you to formalize things in a way that can be helpful too. Well, I think there is a missed opportunity and maybe that's what startup school is going to be. I don't know. Uh, by the way, just like some numbers, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this or not. We'll find out. But the 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 week that I joined, so they start up school at start kicks off every Monday. So the week that I start was 380 people in the kickoff. And so and we can extrapolate a thousand to fifteen hundred people a month coming through this free program. Yeah. And one of the things that I felt like was kind of missing was like there surely is a network for mentorship. There surely is a network somewhere. Um, and I think that's what they're capitalizing on in that you need this sort of advice like you're sharing with me. And broadly, you can generalize that advice to apply to any company. And so I'm hoping that's what startup school, you know, ends up providing for me as a network for getting that sort of advice. Uh, it certainly has the pressure of keeping you on track. If you engage with all of the the tools and reminders and things that they uh, prompt you with your weekly updates and, and such, you know, you track your progress. Yeah. There's a, there's a site that I'm looking up right now. Um, and I don't know, 
I, I have not participated in this, but a, a friend of mine uh, was involved in this from the beginning. Uh, they've got a podcast called Startups for the Rest of Us, and they run a conference called MicroConf. And it's uh, I've never been to a MicroConf. Buddy of mine's involved with it, so just, just keep those things in mind. But this is what they're all about, is they're about mentorship for people that want to bootstrap their businesses. Um, and it's, a, you know, maybe it's something that you can look into. Oh, I absolutely will. And I think uh, one of the, the other founder of it is, um, Rob Walling. He's a guy that has, he's built in. So I'm, I'm reading from his bio. So here marketing stuff. Uh, he built and sold multiple SaaS companies. The, any drip was, I think the big one that was a marketing thing that was kind of successful. Um, and now they're doing this microconf thing and they also have a, Tiny Seed, which is like a, a small uh, VC, not really VC, but just seed capital for people that want to bootstrap, which I know sounds like a little bit of a dichotomy. But even if you're bootstrapping, you do need something to get you started, you know, sure. or to be yeah. able to keep the lights on while you're you're doing the thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. So we've we've been at a, you know chat for a while. We've been around a lot of stuff. And one of the things when I emailed you or or hit you up on Twitter to ask you to come speak was a reverse podcast kind of thing. I want to know about Dev Mode. I want to know how you got into podcasting and you know how's that been going? How did you get started? How's it going? How how do you find guests? Just tell me about your podcast. So I originally got into podcasting because someone else had a podcast already called uh, the Craft Podcast. So it was related to craft CMS. And I co-hosted with him for a little bit, but it, it was a situation where he got real busy. And one of the things that I knew about content creation um, is that really you just need to do it consistently in order to build an audience. Like you just, you just need to do it. You just need to get it out, whether you're a YouTuber or, you know, whatever you are. And I also was at the early stage in learning this stuff where I was still very enthusiastic. And I, you know, honestly, I still am. Whenever I encounter a new piece of technology that I'm interested in, I still get kind of worked up about it. Um, so I enjoyed talking about this stuff, you know, and I found that I was irritating the crap out of my family. You know, I would come home to the dinner table. And I, oh, I tell my wife, oh, let me tell you about this. And she, her, her eyes would just roll and she's like, oh my God, you know, please don't tell me. So I'm like, all right, I got to find some way that I can talk about this stuff that people actually want to hear it, you know? And I decided to just start my own podcast. I didn't want it to be focused on one thing in particular. That's why I picked a relatively neutral dev mode. You know, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as all we talk about is this. And we talk about a wide variety of stuff there from, you know, WebAssembly to, to Vite and, you know, all, all sorts of different topics. And I just had a, a couple of people that I knew that I, it was almost like a commune. I'd be like, all right, we're going to do this show. Anyone who wants to join, you know, feel free to join in and start. And like a lot of these things, uh, you know, people came and went, their availability came and went, you know, uh, some of them, a lot of the people that were freelancers, their time dried up when they ended up getting jobs at full-time companies and they, they couldn't do it anymore. So it, it's normally been just me and another co-host currently is Ryan Ireland, the same guy that I do craft craft quest with. Uh, for a long time, it had been a, a guy, Patrick Harrington, who's a, a good friend of mine. But he, what happened, uh, exactly what I just described happened. He, he started a job at another company, whereas before he was running his own company. 
And I'm like, do you really want to do this? Do you really think you're going to have the time to do this? Because everyone that I know that has transitioned in this way, they think they're going to have all the time in the world. It's going to be it's going to be great because they're going to work nine to five. And then at five o'clock, they're done working and they can do all their hobbies. Well, no, it's not how it works. Um, so he ended up transitioning out and it, it was probably a good thing because he really realistically did not have the time. But that's where it came from. And, you know, I also found it was a great way to learn about stuff because it's a great way to have people on that know things that I don't. And then I can ask them questions about it. And it's, it's great. You know, I can get things answered or, you know, there may be a bit of tech that I'm working on doing something about and um, it will help me learn about it. And also sometimes they can be entrees into getting me involved in whatever that thing is that they're doing. So, for example, uh, we had someone on to talk about this thing called Party Town, which is this really cool JavaScript library that it lets you run all of your tracking scripts in worker threads so that don't impact the front end of the site at all. So we've all built websites where the performance is fantastic. We spent a bunch of time tuning it. We give it to the client, they have GTM, they dump every marketing tag in the book on it. We check the site a few, you know, six months later and the performance is awful. Well, Party Town kind of solves that in that it puts all of that stuff off the main thread so it allows everything to render. It's pretty fantastic. I got involved in that and I ended up writing an article on how to implement that using a, I think it was a Cloudflare worker to <laughs> do the proxy for it. We had someone on to talk about DDEV, which is a local dev environment. And I got roped into, I had written a little bit of Go code before, but not a ton. And I ended up writing uh, a pull request in Go to add something to DDEV that we really wanted. And, you know, just the, the whole circle of me learning and then me doing something with it, I find enjoyable. And like I said, I also enjoy talking about it. I am someone that enjoys that kind of, communication. So it, it kind of satisfies that. The one aspect of it I will tell you that I do not like is I do not like editing the episodes. I could just put them up there with all the ums and the ahs and the, you know, let me say that again, but I don't want to. Um, and that takes time to do it. I know you can hire someone to do it, but to this day, I still have not taken any sponsors on in any capacity for it. And just something in me doesn't allow me to pay someone else to do this when the podcast itself is not making any money, you know? Right. Yeah. Reduce the overhead. Well, we're, we're going to find out again. I don't know when, when I'll actually get this published. Cause I, for the same reason, I do want to have uh, a few episodes ready to go that so that I'm not you know scrambling to find somebody to stay on that schedule. Yep. Uh, and, but uh, yeah, I well, haven't and that's done the thing. The I, I do have a backlog of episodes, but they're unedited. Yeah. <laughs> so you'll, your backlog can come from many places. <laughs> well, I haven't dug into the editing yet. So we'll see if I, um, speaking of ums, there it is. If I, um, yep. you know, find that I do that or not. I don't know. I kind I like, um, I know he's controversial. I like Joe Rogan's style. I like the unedited, just raw. Yeah. It's just a conversation. Yeah. And, um, you know, Obviously, any of the guests or people that I talk to have the option to tell me, oh, yeah, definitely edit all of this stuff out, and we can definitely do that. But I do like the raw, just candid. It is what it is. It's just a conversation. Um, it doesn't have to be perfect. So, And that's the way I originally started it out. And what I found was when I edited a lot of the – well, first of all, I was shocked to find out 
that a decent number of people that listen to the podcast were telling me that they listen to it at like two or three X speed, you know, so we sound like chipmunks talking. And it's because they're in tech, because they're very busy and they don't have much time. And I was like, you know what, I, I probably should edit out all of the crap so that I'm valuing their time and I'm making it as succinct as possible. And they don't have any of the resets or the restarts and all that kind of good stuff in there. It depends on what the podcast is, right? If you're talking about if it's something like Rogan, where it really is supposed to be like just an informal conversation, then doing that kind of editing actually would be bad, right? It would not it would not be what you're going for there. But if you're going to listen to Rogan, that's a very different thing than wanting to learn, you know, a particular piece of tech sure. where right. you just, so it, it depends on what it is. I will say that having done all the editing for it, I still do ums and ahs and I still make mistakes talking, but it's made me much more cognizant of it. And I try not to do it because I know what a pain in the ass it's going to be to go back and edit that thing out, you know? You uh, develop an appreciation for a lot of things in life when you walk yeah. in somebody else's shoes or you decide yeah. to walk in, in a different role. You walk in those shoes, uh, audio editor. I just did it again. See, now you've got me. I can hear every one that I do. I, well, and that's the thing. You know, they say an expert is just someone that's made every possible mistake, right? So I think that you just, as, as you have to do these things, you experience the pain that is involved and you try to avoid that pain in one sense or another. I still do it. I'm sure I've already ummed and I've odd and I've, I've, I tend to say the word right too often. I'm sure I've done that, you know, but I, I at least know about it and I try not to. Well, I haven't heard a lot. So I was kind of, and that stood out too, because I did notice that by the way. So I think you've done a very good job. So thank you. And my future self thanks you very much for doing I, that. I, I sometimes think that, but then I'm going back and editing it and I'm like, God damn it. You know, I did it again. What, what is it? But it's just the, the pain of doing that makes you try to get better at, you know, so you can avoid having to do that, that drudgery work. I, I do think at some point I probably should find someone to edit it or, or just do what you're saying and just, you know, screw it, just release it the way that it is. And it is what it is because I don't want to turn it into something that I, I, I still really enjoy talking to people and I enjoy exploring this stuff, but I don't enjoy that one aspect of it. And I, I sometimes, uh, you know, don't get episodes out when I should just because I'm avoiding sitting. It takes about, takes me about three hours at least to edit a 40, 50 minute, one hour podcast. And you know, that's a decent amount of time just sitting there editing waveforms. Yeah. Well, I was well aware of the investment there and I still haven't decided what software to stick with. I've been using audacity just because yep. free, no, no effort. So what do you use? Let's talk tech on this for a second. So what are you editing in? I think I was originally using audacity. Um, again, it's free and it, it's fine. And I'm just editing waveforms. I've also tried, and I'm going to forget the name of it, but there are some solutions out there that automatically remove ums and ahs and stuff like that. Yep. The thing about those is they, they do do that, but they don't get rid of things where so a very common thing when you're having a discussion is you'll say something and then you'll kind of mess it up. Like I'm blah, 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 blah. Oh. And then what you do is you reset and you start from the beginning so that it's easier to edit it, right? So if I find myself where I screw up something, I'll reset, you know, maybe 10 seconds ahead so I can just cut the whole chunk out. 
and make it easier to edit. The automated stuff doesn't do that, obviously. Like it can't be smart enough to then remove that and clean it up. Currently, I use something called Hindenburg, which I didn't find it until Googling around quite a bit, but it is software that is specifically designed for radio stations and professional auto audio editing. And it works really well for me because it, um, it it's all keyboard based. So I can just be, you can use a mouse too, obviously, but it's quicker because I can select everything as I'm going through it, just using the keyboard and you delete something and it will automatically crossfade it. So you don't have to worry about there being audio chopped here or there. And it has some other tools that are just very specifically geared towards doing exactly what I'm doing. Um, and for that reason, I've, I found it the, the best thing to use. Nice. I'll definitely check that out. I, I got uh, a hint from that. I follow a guy on YouTube called the blind surfer. I don't know if you've seen him. Um, he's a voiceover artist. He's blind and he surfs and skateboards. And so it's his wow. content. Great. It's a ton of fun. Um, he has, you know, obviously he is just an amazing individual for doing what he does. And so in doing the voiceover work, he edits it himself. And mm. so he does a demo for people that didn't believe him. He turns all of his monitors off and he edits everything with his hands on his keyboard and it's slick, um, how quickly he can cut and jump between markers. And so I, it's impressive. So, I'll check out Hindenburg. I had a couple just like one-off questions before we close out that I wanted yeah. to to pick your brain about. So you, you mentioned Pascal and you said they don't even use it when they teach, but Pascal influenced so many languages. I think mm. it's still alive in the sense that it, its influence has been around the ideas that it brought forth. Um, Cause there was an object Pascal too, wasn't there? I think they did an Maybe. OO version. Uh, Modula 2, maybe, was like kind of the successor to it. I don't really know. I mean, I transitioned from Pascal to C, so then didn't necessarily keep up with the happenings in the, the Pascal world, uh, but I did use it for some time. So you said you opened a Go pull request because that was everything I was going to say. So you went from Pascal to C, so did Go. Yep. I love Go for the record. I, 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 I never really did anything of consequence in C or C++, mm -hmm. and I fell in love with Go. Uh, when it yep. came out. So did you enjoy your, your brief time and go, or are you still using it or? I mean, I use languages based on the right thing to use for whatever I happen to be doing. I did enjoy go. And one of the reasons I enjoyed it is it was sort of a callback to my roots from doing C. Yep. Go is very much, it's a lot like C, except without all of the horrible pain, death and misery. Um, right. because you, you don't have to worry about uh, pointer arithmetic or, uh, you know, accessing the, the wrong memory block and memory management. And you don't have to worry about buffer overruns and, and all of these kind of horrible things that you have to learn in C. And I, I was around and doing C programming at the time that C++ came out. And C++ has always been just an abomination from my point of view, because the real problems in C were more basic, like the, some of the things that I was talking about in terms of just the, the mistakes that, excuse me, the mistakes that people made every day, like overrunning a buffer or, you know, things like that. C++ was even more complicated. So giving even more, giving you even more chainsaws to juggle when you're trying to build the thing. And yes, if you are an absolute expert craftsman, you can do some amazing things with it. There's no doubt about it, but that is not, 99.5% of the people that are using any language, 
I don't even, even though I've been programming in a number of languages for a very long time, I still would not consider myself to be an expert at any particular one. Um, I really enjoyed Go for that reason. Like anything else, it's a little bit weird to get started because you're like, okay, I already know how to do this. How do I do this in Go world? Like what's their concept of a, a module? Like how does that work? And how do I yep. import something or do I even, and just the, the basics like that. But I always liken it to, um, you already know how to drive. If I dropped you in the middle of downtown Tokyo, you'd be freaking lost. But as soon as you got a little bit of the lay of the land, you realize they drove on the different, the other side of the street, you still know how to drive. You'll, you'll get it after not too long. And I think that's because the important thing about programming is problem solving and being able to break something down, decompose it, and then figure out how to solve it. And that's universal, no matter what language that you're writing it in. So yes, I did enjoy Go. I like some of the decisions that they made. I like that testing is just built into it and it's just there for you. And there, there are a number of things that I, I think are pretty cool about it. In a similar way, I think that Rust has approached solving some of the problems in C in a manner that it, I almost feel like it's what C++ should have been, is what Rust is. Um, and it doesn't have a runtime like Go does. But the thing is, like these days, it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, computers and memory, if there's a, a runtime that goes along with it, big deal. Even C, a language as low level as C, still sort of has a runtime. It's got standard C that you know ends up getting built, baked into it. So. No, I did. I, I enjoyed Go. If I would do more of it, if I had something to build using it, but currently I don't. That's a big challenge that I face right now with, with the little daycare software project. Um, I am very fast in Django and Python for just cranking mm -hmm. out a web app. So I'm using Django and Python. But there are already places where I'm like, yes, I will. If this gets any traction, I will rewrite this and go. But I could not convince myself to start the project and go. Right. It just, I, I love Go and I love the language, but I, I can't give up the benefit of the framework. But that's the other thing that they built into Go or baked into it that I really like is the concurrency. I yes. like the way that they, the, the model for doing that, I think is, um, it's quite nice because it's approachable. Um, so I could definitely see why you would want to do that um, if you're looking to scale something up. But I think you're doing it the right way. Um, I think you should do it in whatever you feel you can crank this thing out. And just think of it from the point of view, you don't have to write this thing so it can handle a million visitors. You need to write this thing so it can handle a thousand visitors that give you enough money that you can then build it the way that you want to build it. Like, it's totally fine to do that. Um. The, the last thing here, and then, then we'll close it out. I think it's interesting that you came at this and you came through through everything with more of a design focus, that you got interested through typefaces. You said you went to school mm -hmm. for photojournalism. So I have you know, just two kind of really shallow questions. Go as deep as you want. One, what is your favorite typeface? Today, forever, your all-time favorite? Okay. Even though some of the stuff that I have done is design focused, I guess, in some way, I am a terrible designer. I, I'm pretty good at UX design in terms of coming up with uh, patterns and, and things that, you know, users might like to use. My wife has her master's in uh, computer graphic design. So 
I pretty much just defer to her. And even if I disagree, like I know that she's right because she is way better at this than me. It may, I, I don't really, I don't have a favorite typeface, man. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of these designer people that are really in love with type and, oh, look at the curve and the stem of this. And they're, they're, I, I wish I could be that way, but I'm not really. I, I also suck at drawing. Like I can't draw anything to save my life, which is probably why I was interested in photography. Honestly, one of the main reasons why I did that is I was already running a business, a computer software business. I was already very steeped in it, and I wanted to become a little bit more rounded of a person than just going into that and majoring in that and, and sticking to it. And I, I was also, uh, I'll be honest, I, I was probably a little bit of a... I was a little bit arrogant. I thought, I'm like, oh, well, what can they teach me in college? Like, I've already learned all this on my own. Totally wrong, right? I'm just I'm just telling you, flashing back to 18-year-old me, I was a little bit deluded, you know, in terms of what was going on. <laughs> Didn't really know what else was out there in the world. Then this was also a time that there weren't that many people that were developers, right? So there wasn't this huge pool of things that I could look at to realize I really didn't know what I, what I didn't know. You know what I mean? We're still looking stuff up in books, for God's sake, you know? Um, so there was nothing really to compare yourself to. So it's going to be a disappointing answer, man. Like, I'm not real design focused. I'm not. I thought you might have a favorite. It harkens back to the uh, to the, the start of everything. Well, I mean, my favorite typeface is probably like the one that I originally made, you know, back when I was real young. And not because it's even good, but just it is. It has sentimental value. And I remember sitting there in that stupid little pixel editor. And this was before even vector type. So I had to make a different bitmap size mm -hmm. for every size of this stupid thing. So I spent so much time in it. Probably I like Palencia because it's the one that I made a long, long time ago. But I, I, I don't, I'm not a huge typography lover. Gotcha. Is Palencia on the font? Is it free now? Do you still sell it? Oh, God, no, man. I mean, this is stuff like, first of all, no one wants a bitmap font these days. Like, that's just ridiculous. Not true. Not true, but continue. It's, that's all not right. true. Uh, probably if you Google, you could find it somewhere. I know there's a font that I made a long time ago that is still around. Um, I made a programmer's font, and I called it, because I was real original, I called it Pro Font. But it was a, a, a fixed-width font but it had zeros that were distinguished from each other. Like it had a, a either a dot or a slash through it. I can't remember which, but also things like L's and ones and I's uppercase I's, they were all distinct. And it was something that I, um, it actually lives on. Like if you Google pro font, someone somewhere made a vector version of it and it's still around somewhere. There are, there are far better uh, typefaces available now with the ligatures and all that kind of fun stuff. But that one is still around. I know that is. I love Cascadia Cove. I love the ligatures. I'm one of those. I know people that's a love hate relationship with those, but that mm. Cascadia Cove patched with nerd font so that I have all of the glyphs uh, and all the fancy stuff with ligatures. That's my go to, and I use it and I love it. If I had to pick a favorite font, I guess it would be the one that I see the most because it's the one that I use in my code editor and it's Operator Mono. So it's, okay. a, it's like a, a paid font. But it's just a really, I just like the way it looks. It has uh, real italics that are used for certain things. I tried the ligatures like you're talking about. I tried using those for a while and I couldn't do it. And I think one of the reasons I couldn't do it is 
again, my, my background is coming from, I used to do assembly, like really low low level stuff. And I like seeing the thing itself. So when I see this beautiful ligature, I want to see that it's two equal signs and <laughs> greater sure. than sign. I haven't been able to get over that part of it. So I don't have that turned on. Um, but I do like the way that that font looks. So I guess that would be my favorite font. Very cool. And in terms of stuff still living on, I do have, I, one of the things that I wrote in assembly language a long time ago was a game called Maelstrom. It was basically a asteroid style game, right? So I wrote that a long time ago. And I had a guy approach me about, he wanted to use it for his PhD thesis. He was working on a cross-platform animation library that would work on Mac Windows um, called SDL, uh, Simple Direct Media Layer, I think it was what it was called. And I'm like, sure, uh, if you want to do it, you can you can do it, but it's all in assembly language, man. Like that'd be one of the worst things to have to try to port. Not only, I mean, you got to know assembly language, but then you got to try and port all that. But here it is, like here's the source if you want to do it. Well, he did it. I mean, he ported the whole thing to C and his library. And I'm kind of glad he did because now it lives on because it's free, it's open source, it runs on Mac, Windows, Linux. And when I tell my kids I used to make games, I can be like, hey, look, see this thing, it's actually still there. Whereas most of the stuff that I did doesn't even run on the platforms that are around now, you know? We could do an entire podcast on that and how this mm. is the dark ages of tech that so much mm. stuff is throwaway yeah. because the platforms shift so many, so many things shift. And especially with iOS and such, the walled garden platform yep. shifts. Although I was blown away that some guy came up with a website recently and I will look it up for you so you can have it um, in your show notes, but it's a website that it runs like an old version of Mac OS in your browser. And it actually bundles some of my old games that only run on that. And it's just wild that you can just start up a web browser and it, you get like the full desk, you know, system seven desktop or whatever. And some of those games are bundled on there. And it's just absolutely wild. Do you think that's using WASM to do that? Um, I would assume it is using WASM. I can't imagine what else it would. Yeah. Should do better about not using the acronyms WebAssembly. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to chat with me and tell me a little bit about what's going on in your life. And very nice to meet you uh, virtually face to face. And so I really appreciate you taking the time. I can't say thank you enough for that. Andrew Welch, thank you. No, thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Fish Shells. For show notes from this episode and more information about the show, visit leetrout.com. Music production by Haroon Srang. We'll see you next time.